0: This is an ABC podcast. Mike Moskowitz is an ultra-Orthodox rabbi who lives and works in Manhattan. And he looks the part. He wears a black hat, a dark suit, has got a big bushy beard. And so to see Rabbi Mike, you might assume you've got a good idea of his background and what he thinks about most things. But chances are you'd be wrong. Over the years, Rabbi Mike has had conversations that have radically changed his understanding of what a human can be and what God values. So while he prays and studies the Torah and keeps kosher, Rabbi Mike has also been arrested in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. And even more surprisingly, has become a proud ally of the queer and trans community. Hi, Rabbi Mike.
1: Hello, and thank you so much for having me.
0: It is our pleasure. What are your earliest memories of of something that you would now understand as God or as spirituality? How far back in your life does that resonate for you?
1: The earliest memories I have about God, I think, are particularly in the moments where I felt helpless, where I felt abandoned, where I felt isolated and alone. I think around four, I found myself, I think, locked in a room once and just felt powerless. And in that moment, I think is my earliest memory of feeling connected to a higher power, that it can't be that there isn't something that is governing the universe. It can't be that it's really random and chaotic. And I think that space of filling the void... With uh, hope and optimism and faith has been deeply comforting to me ever since.
0: Were you born into a, a religious family?
1: Borrowing language from the queer community, I was assigned secular at birth and kind of came out as uh, Orthodox in high school. I joke that for those who knew me when I was a kid, they told me they always knew. But uh, I was, I was uh, raised in a very Jewish family, very proud Jewish family. My father's father was born in Warsaw, Poland, uh, in what would become the Warsaw Ghetto. And he and some of his family came to America before the war and others remained and, and were murdered. There was a very strong sense of Jewish identity, of morality, of right and wrong. When I was a kid and we'd get into trouble, uh, my mother would say, you know, God knows the truth. God knows what really happened. And that kind of God consciousness was always present, but it was more of of an and identity as opposed to the primary identity. My father was a pediatric cardiologist. You know, I think his professional identity was a much more dominant expression of self. And so when I was young, I was a kid. You know, I was a kid who lived in the suburbs. That was, I think, much more of my identity than I was a Jewish kid who was living in the suburbs.
0: Those suburbs where you grew up were in the South, in Virginia. How personal did the lines that exists there between white and black get for you as a teenager.
1: It got very personal when I started actually dating a lovely young woman uh, in middle school who was not Jewish and was a young woman of colour. We met, I think, through sports at school and became very good friends and then started dating and it became clear by the reaction that other people had that, like, this is strange and, you know, do you know what you're doing? And, like, have you thought of this? And for me, it didn't register as something that required thought. He was a lovely person who was really bright and fantastic. And the fact that she was a person of color didn't, didn't mean anything to me. The fact, just like the fact that she wasn't Jewish at the time for me didn't register as something that should have given me pause. It gave my parents pause. Questions like did you tell your grandparents yet, or are people saying things to you? And I felt a little bit like I just wasn't getting it like i don't I don't understand why this is a big deal i just i don't I just don't understand
0: what did her parents think her, her dad in particular, about the two of you dating one another?
1: So what I remember is that her mother was very sweet and lovely, and I rarely met her father, I think maybe just one or two times, and I remember and being very cold and distant. And we broke up kind of suddenly and without explanation. And it was only years later that she told me that it was really her father's insistence because I was white, that he evidently used to be a member of the Black Panthers and had very real feelings about her dating somebody who was white. And um, what that meant for her black identity, what that meant in terms of a statement of the role of white people in America... And it was some sort of betrayal and some sort of erasure, and uh really, like twenty years later, she reached out and um she even she apologized, and I don't think that it was closure that I needed, but it provided a certain context, which still I think underscores the the generational gap in understanding for people who lived through the civil rights movement and for those who were born after it was perceived to have been. Remedied that actually there's a lot of healing that needs to take place, and there's a lot that's still wrong.
0: How did your parents try to redirect you after after this relationship with a a
1: non-Jewish girl? They were very proactive, and I think <laughs> it really came from my grandparents saying, you know, to my parents, you can't just let him figure this out by himself. <laughs> it's not going to end well. Um, maybe kind of direct. To uh, a pool of uh, of young Jewish people, and so they enrolled me in high school in a Jewish youth group. It was called USY, and it was clear that like now you'll meet a nice Jewish girl. And did it did it work? Yeah, it definitely worked. There were tons of young people, and um, it was a lot of fun. And there were people who had language for their Jewish identity. So much of my. Jewish identity in Hebrew school as a kid was in reaction to the Holocaust, and even you know things that I remember about the framing of why it's so important to to have Jewish children is we have to repopulate, and um, it was all very negative and reactionary. And here I heard really for the first time that people were joyous about spiritual practice and they enjoyed celebrating the sabbath and they very much saw the community as something that was nourishing and supportive and not just obligatory or some sort of like shock and awe that if you don't do what you're supposed to do there'll be some sort of cosmic consequence and um, i met a lovely young woman there and she had more of of a background and i also felt for the first time there was a lot that i didn't know
0: Well, tell me about the moment where you you came across some readings, some texts that really shifted your understanding of, of who you were and what your role was going to be. What happened?
1: From the time I was a little kid, I was sensitive to the pain and suffering of the world. Just It seemed to me problematic that we are born, we live life, we all experience ups and downs. And although they're good times, there's no shortage of bad times for anybody. And then like we die. And it just felt like there was a vacuum there in terms of a framing that made sense. And one evening at one of these conferences, they had educational opportunities for people who were more engaged and had a background. And this young woman that I was dating was at one of these classes and I was waiting for her. And uh, this was way before cell phones or anything electronic, and so I was bored and The only thing they had available in terms of reading material where I was uh sitting was prayer books and It happens to be in the middle of a uh, most jewish prayer books there 's a section that has six chapters of what 's called ethics of our ancestors and their moral teachings and I just started at the beginning, and it was the first time I ever remember coming across it, but it really gave a framing for processing all of the pain and suffering and giving it meaning in that the world that God created was perfect. It was literally the Garden of Eden. And God said, no, we didn't listen. And we kind of broke the world. And it wasn't a safe space for us to co-occupy God's garden. And so God threw us out. And so it's now on us to repair and to heal and to fix the world that that we kind of destroyed. And uh, that for the first time, like, made me feel not just like invited, but really kind of encumbered by what's broken in the world and the oppression and the marginalization and all of the, the bad things that are happening, That that's actually not what's supposed to be happening. That's not normal. People aren't supposed to be suffering. They're not supposed to be these downs. And I thought really very quickly about then if I'm in this world, it must be that there's a purpose for it. And that purpose must be in partnering with the divine to do my part to heal this world. And very quickly, I thought to myself, well, there are going to be consequences for this theology, and what is it going to mean in terms of you know the other things that I might want to pursue in life? And in a matter of, I think, just a few seconds, I got to a place where I remember thinking to myself, who am I to tell God that I'm too busy to do what God created me to do? And then very quickly, I kind of went on this right wing trajectory of like, OK, whatever it says I'm going to do. And I'm just going to keep learning until I know all the things to do and nothing else is important. But also, like, I have no idea what's right. I don't know what it means to be an observant Jew, but I'm committed to, to, to learning and listening and then doing
0: So your parents sent you off to this organization, hoping that you'd find a nice Jewish girl to get married to. And you come home and say, guess what? Also, I'm going to become an ultra-orthodox rabbi. How did they react?
1: It was intense. I came back and I was like, okay, um, I need to get the ritual items. I need to get a skull cap and I need to wear the fringes and where do I find phylacteries to fill in? And also like we need to make the kitchen kosher and I'm not going to do these things on the Sabbath anymore. And I think they regretted sending me. (laughs) I think they got much more than they they bargained for. And uh, my father in particular was like, what are you doing? Right? Like what are you doing? You can do all these other things. This is just going to be a phase. You know, you can't make choices now that will have long term consequences. So if this is really what you want to do long term, like finish high school, then instead of going to college, I could go To yeshiva, you know, to to rabbinical school, uh, which is what I did. I actually, I was actually only in high school for three years. Um, And my fourth year, I worked in a shoe store to save up some money and took a couple of college classes to, to get you know, my high school diploma. But I was really very much kind of focused and made this beeline towards, um, I just want to be in full-time study to really be able to be equipped um, to live a life that narrows that space between kind of the wisdom and and, and practicing it.
0: When you think about your dad's reaction uh, was it almost like you were going back on on the family's trajectory? That his dad had had made it out of Warsaw. That you know he was a, a cardiologist, a pediatric cardiologist. This was not the future that he would envisaged for his son in America.
1: Absolutely, my father cried the day that I left uh, to go off to Israel, and um, I don't have another memory of my father crying. He's not an emotional person in that way. And I think there was a deep sense of disappointment that for two generations, three generations, people had sacrificed so that I didn't have to be in a difficult place, that I could have opportunities and have, you know, access and privilege and all the things. And I was rejecting it. I was saying, actually, like, I'm not interested. Like, this American dream is less appealing to me than the dream perhaps of my great-great-grandparents in Europe. Um, And I think that was like really hard for them. And having kids myself now, one of the, the things that I've always tried to be sensitive to is that my dreams and aspirations are mine and it's important that they have theirs. And I wanna be supportive and not artificially force them to accept mine. But for my father in particular, I don't, I don't know that he ever recovered from it. Um, and I, my grandfather also would say things like, you know, you can be a good Jew, And not have to, you know, go this far. You can be like, this is enough, right? And I I remember he would always say, like, it's enough to do, you know, this amount. You don't need to do all this other stuff. And I think one of the things that my grandfather didn't appreciate was that it was enough for him. But I actually needed more. I wasn't raised in the shtetl, in the ghetto. I wasn't raised speaking Yiddish or where, you know, growing up. Anti Semitism for me, ironically, in the South was not part of my lived experience. And I think that made it harder for them to understand why I would choose to put myself in a position of, um, of kind of giving up and, and cashing in on that commodity of privilege.
0: Mm. Despite your your parents, your dad, and your your granddad's wishes or, or aspirations, perhaps you qualified as a rabbi, got married, and, and started a family of your own, and were working at Columbia University. What were you doing there?
1: I was working as a, as a rabbi through the office of the chaplaincy, doing Jewish outreach, trying to be a good clergy member to to the Jewish population, helping particularly students that were raised in a secular Jewish home reconnect to their Jewish roots and identity. And so most of my work there was in setting up um, weekly meetings with people to study and to learn and to kind of bond in the world of ideas, to kind of share from the wisdom of our tradition that I think really does help enrich one's own lived experience. I was the rabbi uh, also of a synagogue at the time.
0: Then, Rabbi Mike, you had a conversation with a family member, which ended up changing really everything. What happened? What happened?
1: Yeah, it uh, it certainly did change everything. One day, someone in my family said to me, I am not a girl, I'm a boy. And I said, what do you mean, you're not a girl, you're a boy? And with just like clarity and simplicity, he said, yeah, I just, it's not complicated. I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. And I remember asking like, how do you know? I know how I'm a guy, but it can't be the same way. And he just kept reinforcing it I just am I just I just am and I remember feeling completely detached from the reality of the conversation it's like somebody says uh you don't have any elbows and you're like what do you mean (laughs) like I do have elbows it's how like my arms move it just it just like didn't I could gain no traction I don't think I had known anybody of trans experience before this moment and I just remember it was like it was just this um cycle, this this record that kept playing in a loop and it was a tiny loop. Like what do you mean? I don't understand. Like what do you mean? I don't understand. It it, it was it, it just was very quick, unending, and it gained no traction. It wasn't shifting to uh any evolved thought. It was just like, I don't, I just don't understand.
0: But you didn't feel yourself in, in opposition or that this was wrong or against God. It was a,
1: it was a neutral feeling of, I just don't understand the words which are coming out of your mouth. Because I think for me, I don't actually sense internally my gender identity. I don't feel masculine. I present very masculine. I don't feel conflicted in that. I've never, since I was a kid and told which bathroom to use, was never perplexed, by that identity, even now I, I don't I don't feel male. I don't I don't. So when he said I don't I'm not a woman. I'm not a girl. I'm a, I'm a boy. I just I didn't understand even the source of that awareness. I think more than the consequences of that. I wanted to understand. What do you know that I don't? What um, awareness? of an expanded existence do you have access to that I just don't understand? And I think it was an unfair question because for people who experience things in a broader way, like synesthesia, people who see sounds, it's hard to ask people to describe their normal in relationship to something that they don't experience. Mm. And so he just didn't have the words or the language. And what I've come to realize after now many years of obsessively thinking about this uh, and not having still gained any sort of traction is that it's actually my own limited awareness of gender to my body that makes me cisgender, not transgender. And so it's that space beyond one's body that trans folks are able to sense and perceive and give language to. Um, And I I just can't.
0: Back in those early days where it was just this new information for you that you were just at the very beginning of, of trying to make sense of, who did you turn to for advice or clarification?
1: I've been really blessed to have wise friends and teachers along this journey. And I think the best advice I got from, uh, was from a close friend of mine. She was a law professor at the University of Richmond. And she said if you're able to kind of reframe your dynamic from being the adult and the wise teacher to being the student, if you can invite that person to be the teacher and say to them, although I am a teacher, I really need to be your student in this because I can't intuit it, then you'll be able to engage in a process of humble listening, to be able to really understand how to be supportive. Because I think at my core, that's all I wanted to do. And I just felt insecure and not knowing how to do that.
0: That's a big role reversal as a rabbi.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think aspirationally, I think all teachers recognize that our students have a lot more to teach us. But yes, this was not what was on the menu. This was not what I ordered. This was not (laughs) what I even thought was possible, right, to be given.
0: What about other rabbis in those early days? Did you turn to other rabbis for guidance about how to make sense of this, particularly as an ultra-orthodox Jew?
1: I did. I spoke to really all of my rabbis that that would speak to me, and it was clear that none of them had actually had conversations with people of trans experience directly. And so the answers varied widely and were all, I think, not informed by a proximity to the experience, but more a comfort in text. And in fact, one rabbi in particular, who's a really big expert in, in parenting and has books on education, and said to me, honestly, I have no idea because I've never been asked this question before. And I said to him, Rabbi, if you don't know, then who does? And I think that mo- moment for me in particular was really pivotal in that it gave some permission uh, to kind of think out loud publicly about these questions, because in Jewish law, you really can't answer the question until you understand the reality. And having never met people of trans experience, there's just a lack of, of informed knowledge
0: As your family member went through that public transition, what did you start to learn about your congregation?
1: There's a universal truth in not having to think about things that aren't applicable to you. And I, like, I think the majority of straight people just assume the world is heteronormative. And cis people, we assume that everybody... That's presenting in a certain gender is was a sign that way at birth. And then when you're brought to a certain kind of awareness of the lived experience of others, then all of a sudden you recognize the truth is very, very different. And so as I started speaking about these things publicly, it turns out that I had trans congregants and trans students. And because there's such a dominant culture of transphobia, people were in the closet. People were carrying um, all sorts of perceived shame and fear and anxiety for just being. And so they concealed it. And when it became clear that my synagogue was a safe space and that I was somebody that people could trust, people started coming out from the closet. And I was shocked to see for the first time how, not just how, the sanctuary that we took so much pride in being a safe space for people to be out in relationship to God was actually not a safe space at all. It was not a sanctuary. It was not a place where people could be who they were in an authentic way with themselves or in community and the work that needed to get done, but also just that people didn't feel comfortable in Orthodox spaces even speaking to the rabbis about their gender identity. And it just just became such a weight that I felt that the world needs to to heal from this ongoing trauma. Mm-hmm.
0: There must have been some emotional conversations one-on-one with you when members of your congregation realized they could be open with you. That must have been incredibly transformative for people.
1: It was transformative for people, and it was also really transformative to me. There was one one boy in particular, he was assigned female at birth and also came from a different coast. And when he came to college at the airport, he got a haircut and brought a new set of clothing, uh, including ritual items, um, so that when he landed on uh, the East Coast, he presented as both male and as Orthodox. And I had no idea. And at some point he came up to me and he said, you know, rabbi, um, I'm also trans. And I had that same experience of like, what do you mean? I don't understand. Like, I don't understand because he presented very, he presented and passed as a, as a man. I just didn't, I just didn't understand. He was really patient and he was really kind. And although it's unfair ever to ask somebody who's already kind of oppressed to dig deeper, to make it easier for another, he did that with a deep generosity of spirit, and we became really close. And in particular, one day I remember he sent me a text because he was completely closeted as both not coming from an observant home and also being trans. And in Orthodox Judaism, there's a tradition of gender-based spiritual practice. And what that means is that sometimes... There's an ask for a certain number of men and certain rituals that only men can do and others that are just for women. And so kind of the stakes are much higher. And if nobody's ever validated you or affirmed that within Jewish law, you are who you say you are, there can be that doubt without the potential of ever ameliorating the ambiguity. And so he carried all of this stress of just being from bathroom usage to access to ritual spaces and not wanting to mislead anybody, but also knowing internally that he is who he is and he doesn't have doubts about his own identity. And is he good enough in all the places? And so one day I received a text from him saying that he was having a particularly hard time and he actually wasn't sure if he was going to be able to, to handle it. And I got very nervous very quickly. I picked up my phone, but before I could even respond, he sent a second text saying, Rabbi, I just want you to know how much I appreciate your existence. And in that moment, so much internally changed for me that if him just having a person that knew his story and was able to see his truth, was able to take him from one side of trying to struggle through this broken world to the other, to be able to now, thank God, be healthy and happy and really productive. I just felt like, who am I to be silent about this? Like, how, how can I feel comforted by the comfort that I have knowing that it's not being used and networked as a resource for those who really need it? And it was really in that moment that I, I made that decision that um, it wasn't enough just to speak about it. In like minded circles and in closets and hallways, but to really be very public about it. On air,
0: online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. This public advocacy that you realised you wanted to step into, it ended up getting you fired from your job at Columbia University. You work as a rabbi there. What did you do to make ends meet, Mike? Like, what does a a rabbi without a congregation do to um, pay the bills? Or what did you do?
1: Yeah, it it was a really traumatic and difficult time that because I was so public and it made national news when I was in these positions and saying these things. And then when I got fired, um, I really couldn't find employment in my field. Um, there are a lot of different ways of being a rabbi, a lot of really holy ways of being a rabbi. But in the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox world, uh, for somebody who was in the position that I was in, nobody was really interested. And so I found a job actually managing a deli in Lakewood, New Jersey. I had bills to pay, and um, it was the work that I could, could find. And Honestly, it was not the worst job I ever had. Um, it was a lot of good eating early in the morning
0: <laughs> what what, but... what what was on um, the top of your list?
1: yeah, so they had like these different uh kind of chicken nuggets or chicken fingers, <laughs> kind of strips of chicken that were deep fried in all these different sauces and It might sound strange to to kind of <laughs> dive into that at seven o'clock in the morning, but it was it was comforting and it was a lot of fun and it was a break that I think was really necessary for me to kind of slow down and and uh, recalibrate and reorient, and also I was reevaluating where my place really was in the world and. Did I have to choose between, you know, a religious identity and a progressive identity? Is that something that could really be held simultaneously? What
0: kind of people were you working with? I mean, you were suddenly in a completely different kind of community, I imagine, religiously and ethnically and, and educationally. What, what sort of relationships did you have there?
1: It was fascinating in that, you know, in a kosher deli, there are non-Jewish employees and it was part of a large Jewish supermarket. And so you had people coming in to do their shopping. And um, I made friends who would come and and speak to me at the counter. Some people knew who I was, and they would ask questions, you know, in theology, we would have conversations, (laughs) you know, over while I was slicing pastrami. There were certainly people that that, that came for the pastrami, but stayed for the the lecture. You know, people, uh, you know, part of being a rabbi is, I think, being a people person. And and then other people spoke to me as if I was not a person, but just kind of a servant, uh, a slave to the system, and would you know offer orders of I want this and that, and like didn't and just dehumanized me like they dehumanized everybody behind the counter, and it gave me a um, a portal into how different other people's lives are. And I also became friendly with some of the younger people who were working there, people who had never gone to college, people who were in and out of of jail and prison. There was one young woman in particular, really lovely and bright, but uh, her mother was in jail um, for, like, a long time. She was being raised by her grandmother, who also worked at the deli. And the struggles of just going paycheck to paycheck and trying to, to kind of break the cycle of recidivism and, you know, trying to stay healthy when the system is really working against you. And it just um, it gave me a tremendous sensitivity to how as difficult as my life was in the moment— it was just fundamentally a different life in terms of the opportunities that I have because of where I was born, to, who my parents are and the way in which I present in the world. And um, in America, one's zip code is actually like more a determining factor of success than one's IQ or or things that are actually relevant to a person's ability to be gainfully employed. And it was really clear to me that I had, you know, I was meeting and working with people who were so proficient and so bright and so thoughtful and so kind. And like lovely humans who just because of their lack of access to certain kind of basic structural systems, they didn't have the same opportunities that I did.
0: You took a day off the deli counter in 2018. Why? What were
1: you doing? After work, I actually drove south and um, drove to D.C., got a couple of hours of sleep and went to an action of civil disobedience. In high school, I read Thoreau and Emerson and the Transcendentalists and was really moved by the way in which they saw their deliberate acts of revolution and resistance as part of their spiritual practice like they really saw disrupting systems of oppression as as holy work and this was going to be my first action of civil disobedience and it was very well orchestrated it was me and about 80 other rabbis and jewish leaders that got together to protest the previous administration's policy towards uh, dreamers or what's called daca it's deferred action for children that were accompanied into America by undocumented immigrants. Meaning if somebody came into the country illegally and brought with them a child, that child um, didn't really have a path to citizenship. It's something that in America is very complicated around immigration. It's been unfortunately um, affected by xenophobia and Islamophobia in the previous administration. And didn't have uh, any other language or any other country to call home, that that America was the only home they ever had and that they could potentially be deported to a place that they had no roots or family. It was just clearly that this is an immoral act.
0: Just to jump in for a a second there, the Dreamers bill or the Dream Act bill was something that President Obama had introduced and that President Trump was wanting to revoke. So this 2018 of course is in, is in the midst of Donald Trump's presidency when you and these 80 or so other rabbis and Jewish leaders descend on the, on the Capitol building in Washington. What was the plan for for once you arrived there as you said this is your first act of civil disobedience?
1: <laughs> I chose I want to get arrested, right? Like I need to be able to have news stories at the deli. But no, I really <laughs> wanted I wanted I felt like that this was something that for me I wanted to explore. Uh, and kind of experiment with, like, does this feel holy in the moment? Does bringing attention through disruption, how does that feel like on a soul level? And so basically, we came into the Senate Rotunda. And we just had explain that space the...
0: for us, Rabbi Mike, which oh might gosh, be unfamiliar. A... What's it look sure. like? Sure.
1: The Senate Rotunda is a beautiful, opulent, circular space that has great historical significance, but the visual optics are just. Um, If you can picture the most American room uh, in terms of, you know, the marble and the stone and the high ceiling and uh, kind of the ornate pride that America takes in its government buildings – it's just this magnificent open space that um is round, and so we're sitting in a circle and as we start singing and we have signs and uh we stop singing, there are a few people that are invited to speak. I'm invited to speak, and um the police start uh kind of forming a circle around our circle, and they're lining the walls and they're there kind of in riot gear, and they're have megaphones, and they have Attached to their bulletproof vests Stacks of Like zip-tie plastic handcuffs For mass arrests Like they're very much prepared And we're sitting on the floor And we have signs, you know, Jews for Dreamers You know, pass the DREAM Act And someone comes on the bullhorn And says, this is your first warning You're here lawfully If you don't want to get arrested You need to vacate the premises now And we're singing And Then there's a second warning and we're singing louder and there's a third warning. And then the police come really calm, one at a time, tap us on the shoulder, ask us to stand up, put our hands behind our backs. And they start leading us away one at a time as the rest of uh, the group is singing. And it is powerful. It's spiritual. It feels like a level of, of self-sacrifice in the moment a person is giving themselves over for a cause. Um, and I cried. It was moving. I felt like I was doing something. I was doing a thing. And it felt in the moment like this was significant to bring awareness to what we felt was an unholy and an unjust act by saying, like, we're willing to, like, be here and to go through this process. And uh, it gained national attention. Bernie Sanders live streamed it and uh, the late night shows spoke about it. But it brought a tremendous amount of awareness that for those who believe in Judaic values and wisdom, we're saying in a unified voice, we're not okay with this.
0: So you were arrested alongside other rabbis, other leaders. What was the mood like in the, the paddy wagon,
1: in the police van? So it shifted, I think, pretty dramatically from the before, which for me was pretty anxiety filled, uh, not knowing what was going on. It was the winter, it was cold. We were told not to bring extra things like leave your cell phone. I think we were told to bring like $50 to pay for our own bail. Um, but really not to like complicate the process by having other things. And so like I was away from my cell phone, which never happens. And (laughs) it was just a little bit, it was out of my element and, um, but after we got moved, moved outside, there was more of a celebratory tone that, like, we were successful in doing what we wanted to do. We brought attention. We brought awareness. Um, nobody got hurt. Everybody followed what they were supposed to do. The police were really respectful. Some even, like, really thanked us, particularly um, for the police people who were people of color. They, like, they appreciated it. They were very professional. And then we're kind of led into the back of these police wagons, and it's intense. It's a lot of metal. So if you can picture the back of a police wagon is actually curved at the top. And so when I was put in, I was put on a bench with four other male-identifying rabbis, there's this metal partition that goes right in front, like just a couple of inches in front of your face. And then on the other side of that partition is uh, another bench with five female-identifying rabbis. And the top of the police wagon is curved in that You're still in handcuffs, but you're forced to lean forward because the back of the police wagon is curving towards the center. And so there's just very little room and there's just metal in front of your, in front of your face, behind your head. Um, You're sitting on this metal bench. It's, it's intense. And the woman who's kind of diagonally in front of me says, or a bunch of rabbis, does, you know, somebody have some biblical thoughts to share? and we're all in handcuffs right it's it's a very captive audience and for rabbis this it just doesn't get any better than this right nobody can go anywhere and so I was the first one to to speak up. I just published an article on on gender and and clothing, and um, I shared some thoughts. And, and, you know, you
0: spoke up, you you present as an ultra-Orthodox rabbi. There's the hat, there's the beard. You're um, around, I'm imagining, a bunch of visibly differently progressive or reform Jewish leaders. What was the mood when you began to speak? I wonder what they thought they were about to start hearing.
1: You're 100 percent right that I looked out of my element. It looks like I got lost and just got on the wrong bus and was like, <laughs> you know, holding out for maybe some free food or something, you know, like this is a party. Let's see what see how it ends. But, yeah, I'm fortunate enough that, that I got to know some of the people afterwards. And what I heard from somebody who was sitting across from me is that when I said that I had just... Um, written something and wanted to share thoughts on gender and clothing. This woman has been out as a lesbian and a, a lesbian rabbi for like 30 years that she told me that her her like eyes rolled because she was like, oh my gosh, this guy is going to teach me something about like queer theory. And um, so I think there was a lot of awkward suspicion that I was out of my elements. But um, this woman afterwards told me that she had actually been Um, exposed to a brand new way of thinking things of things because of my tradition and my background. And that woman was Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, who's now actually my boss. And she's the senior rabbi, it turns out, of the uh, world's largest LGBT synagogue. And what was so magnificent about that moment was that through the course of the next several hours of being processed, we got to schmooze, uh, we got to speak a little bit. And she uh, had actually read some of the things that I had published and wanted to know what I was up to, like, where am I working? you know, Who's funding my work? And I said, it's actually the deli counter. And uh, she said, well, we have, to, we have to do something about that. And so she and some very generous congregants at, at the synagogue came together um, and created a position for me to be the scholar in residence for trans and queer Jewish studies.
0: Wow. So she's the rabbi at this big LGBT uh, congregation. Is that where you worship? It's, it's who's funding your teaching research position. Is that your religious community now?
1: It's certainly part of my community. I, I think overlap in a few different ones, but I teach several classes there a day. And so certainly um, in terms of my learning community and in terms of my spiritual community of social justice, we still get have protests. I've gotten arrested since, um, and it's absolutely a huge part of my community. I don't worship there in terms of prayer. Um, what's nice about the synagogue is that it's actually not affiliated with any of the the particular movements within Judaism. And the clergy staff is large and varied. So we actually have people from uh, different seminaries. And my work is really focused on the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox world for LGBT issues. And then my work uh, around the trans experience is much broader in interfaith and interdenominational spaces. But because we're so large, the High Holidays that are coming up now, uh, pre-COVID, we would have you know, between four and five thousand people coming. It's, it's a very large community.
0: In terms of your work with people in the trans community or family members of people who are come out as trans or are transitioning,
1: what kind of conversations do you mostly find yourself having? When somebody transitions, everyone in their family is affected and people can be supportive and still need support themselves. One of the the ongoing conversations, particularly of parents of trans kids, is I want to be supportive but or and. And the but or and can be a lot of things. You know, I, I named this child after my father. And now my son tells me that he's my daughter and that's fine. And I love her and I want to be supportive. But that name means a lot to me. Why can't she just keep the name after my father? And it's like a technical point, but Um, It's really, for some people, the biggest issue. Everyone's transition is different and there's no right way to do it. Um, And I think from the parents' perspective as well, for some people, when their kid turns four, they mourn the three-year-old, right? Like I used to have a three-year-old, now I have a four-year-old. And for others, it's the natural extension. And so for some parents, having a child of one gender that transitions to another, there's a period of mourning that is not a negation or an erasure of the trans experience, but just a recognition that... The dynamic is different and there can be some sadness. And for other parents, it's just like I didn't mourn the younger one. Now uh, they're older. So, so too, they used to be male, now they're female or vice versa. And so um, those conversations can really be varied. One of the things that I think is is, is difficult for parents, and this is true even for queer parents, I, I had one mother who said to me, who's a lesbian, said, you know, I, I hope that, you know, this trans child is just, uh, it's just uh, a phase. And with some divine, I think, assistance or intervention, I was inspired to say, "Miss, you know, you don't get to get off at the L stop of the LGBT train, right? <laughs> like, it can't just be that you create space for yourself." And so, um, and and even a parent I was speaking to recently is a man of trans experience, and he's got a gender queer kid, and he said to me, "You know, Rabbi, like, just this, I don't understand." <laughs> And I said to him, this you don't understand, right? I don't understand any of it, right? But you don't actually need to understand it to be supportive and to be an ally. And so there's always some version of, but I can't wrap my head around, or like, why is this necessary? Or why isn't it enough for them just not to? And I think that's, that's part of what having different lived experience is, is that it's, there's something that we can't intuit, there's something that we can't necessarily relate to in the same way.
0: Rabbi Mike, I wonder in these conversations that you have with Jewish parents and Jewish families is how does your understanding of God and of your relationship with God as a Jewish person, how does that help give some shape to the unknowing that's there?
1: It's a wonderful question. I think for me, I've come to understand God through this queer experience lens in ways that has, I think, brought me much closer to the truth. Being seen and, and understood is not actually, I think, sourced in the human experience, but really emanates from the divine. In rabbinic literature, we're told that when we talk about the Genesis narrative, particularly the emptiness and void at the beginning of it, we need to talk about it with tremendous sensitivity because it's actually referring to God's emptiness and, and God's loneliness. That the reason why it's not good for us to be alone is because we're created in the image of the divine and it's not good for God to be alone. And so being able to to have that proximity to people who are struggling and being out has helped me understand and reframe like the divine revelation at Mount Sinai is really as God's coming out speech. And I think that we've absolutely forced God back into the closet because it's actually not a safe space. Just 40 days later, according to, to Jewish tradition, you know, we were serving this golden calf, which was really an erasure of God's identity as the infinite source of the universe. And so I think when we can recognize how, essential this is to being, not just as a person, but on a soul level of being the most authentic and genuine version of oneself, being able to relate to God as the knower and the source of all of that. Um, Judaism believes that we're creating the image of the divine, but God doesn't really have an image. We have a tradition of God having gendered attributes, but not of having a body. And we have a tradition of gender-based spiritual practice. And I think it leads us to believe that gender exists certainly on a soul level. And thinking about the unique blends of each person can, I think, help people relate to the reality that we carry a lot of different identities. And sometimes there's tension below the surface. But I think the greatest reframing is that this is not a deviation from a spiritual identity, but rather an embracing of it.
0: What do other ultra-Orthodox Jews or other ultra-Orthodox rabbis make of your approach?
1: I think some are grateful that I'm doing it so they don't have to, (laughs) uh, because there's just the reality that a percentage of of, of the population is LGBT+. And this is something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So I get a lot of referrals um, from other Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox rabbis, because I think on some level it's easier to kind of perpetuate this notion that if you don't talk about it, it's not real. And so if they don't have to talk about it, they don't have to deal with it. And so somebody else is willing to like, that's better. Um, And there's certainly some who are in opposition. When I first started working at the synagogue uh, about four and a half years ago, we got a lot of hate mail. We've had a lot of people kind of harassing and even stalking. Like it's, I think very threatening to many that we're questioning what many see as an immutable kind of family dynamic. And, uh, the foundation of society is, you know, a man and a woman and and that's the way that works and those are the roles and and messing with that is is threatening the entire system of family life and morality and all of the things. But um, at the end of the day, we need to have answers and we're not meant to answer questions, but we're meant to answer people. And if you're not willing to engage or acknowledge the reality of the lived experience of people, then you can't answer that question properly. And these questions are actually, I think, relatively new. When the world was a less safe space to be out, people suffered in silence and leaving the Orthodox community for a secular one wasn't really an option. The modern LGBT movement in America is just 50 years old. And so now really for the first time, you have young people in particular um, that are choosing not to choose between a religious identity and a a queer identity. So there's been a shift that took 3,500 years to, to go from what's described as an intolerable deviancy, in that if you come out as trans or queer, then you have to get out. There's no space in the community for you. And really just recently, in the last few years, it's moved to kind of a a tolerable deviancy, in that I'm not okay with what you're doing, but I'd rather you be here than leave. And to go from there to acceptance and from acceptance to celebration doesn't take 3,500 years. For most people, it's it's a matter of weeks or months uh, to process that this is actually... Something that is holy and beautiful and worth embracing and and elevating. And that's what we're seeing, I think, really quickly that it kind of hit this critical threshold of awareness that I think every single person knows somebody now in their life, whether it's a neighbor or it's a coworker, it's a family member that is genderqueer or queer, and it's much easier to hate somebody from a distance. To dehumanize somebody up close is much harder. So when you already know somebody and you already love them and you realize that they're an amazing human who then happens to be queer or genderqueer, so then the stereotype is broken because you already got to know the person before the prejudice could kick in.
0: Hmm. What's kept you, Rabbi Mike, in the tent of ultra? Orthodox Judaism, because I'm sure it had been pointed out to you, hey, if this is the way you feel about trans people or queer people, go and join one of those other traditions where that's already been sorted.
1: I think for me, it's it's really not a choice. It just is who I am. Um, I believe that God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. It is eternal and infinite. And a consequence of that theology is that I believe that our work is not to create or invent, but to uncover and discover the divine will. So for me, I don't feel the tension. Mm. I feel this is where we can meet God in an ongoing revelation of the divine will. And I think there's something about the, the LGBT experience of of recognizing that certain things are not a choice that that has always resonated with me because it's really, I think it's a function of an awareness. I identify more as an observant Jew than I do as anything else. And for me, it just is who I am. Um, I think it reinforces our belief that that we're all equally created in the image of the divine. And there's a way in which for those of us who have a relationship with the divine, we're held responsible more than we treat God directly, is, is how we treat God through other people.
0: As an observant Jew, is it unusual to be as comfortable with unknowing as you seem to be?
1: When I think about what I know, it's like drops in an ocean of what's, of what's out there. And so I think that's the role of faith, you know, for things that, that we can know we don't have to believe in. Um, you know, society says seeing is believing, but it's not true. Seeing something like... I saw it. I know it. I don't need to believe. I think somebody once framed it that uh, faith begins where the intellect ends. But I think there's a rational type of faith that I'm here, right? And I feel really blessed to be here. And um, God has a great track record. uh, I personally feel with myself of despite a lot of ups and downs that I feel I've never felt abandoned. I've never felt like I was forgotten. And like King David writes in Psalm 23, because you're with me, that even in the valley of the shadow of death. And so that sense of, of journeying with the divine, like that I know. That's, and I think that's what I, I want other people to know, is that they're not alone.
0: It's been so fascinating to hear your story, Rabbi Mike. Thank you so much for, for being my guest on Conversations.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure.
0: Rabbi Mike Moskowitz is the scholar in residence for trans and queer Jewish studies at Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, the world's largest LGBT synagogue, and he's also received three ultra-orthodox ordinations and is the author of a bunch of books, including Graceful Masculinity. I'm Sarah Kanoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.